Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. It is a frigid night in New York, and there's a snowstorm on the way. So let's talk about some baseball and think warm thoughts. Sitting here right next to me, MLB.com National Editor, Matt Myers. Matt, hello. Mike. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for being here. Uh, we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about tonight. Where do you want to start? Well, you wrote two pieces this week that I thought were fascinating and set uh, social media ablaze. The first one um, we'll start with is Tyson Ross. Pitcher, hard-throwing pitcher, Yes, and you made an incredible discovery about him that I want you to share with the audience. Well, I was perusing the MLB.com StatCast exit velocity leaderboards, and I noticed that Tyson Ross's name was on there as a hitter, and he is, of course, a pitcher, and he was pretty high. He was 17th as a hitter above, you know, Yonis uh, Cespedes, above Paul Goldschmidt, above all these superstars, and, you know, obviously we're not talking the largest sample size of bad balls in the world here but there he was and so I, I thought it was interesting he has an exit velocity as a hitter of 93.5 miles an hour and his fastball as a pitcher 93.4 miles an hour so he's actually hitting the ball harder than he throws it uh, which I thought that was really interesting he has 10 track balls over 100 miles per hour and if you look at that on a, a percentage basis 21.4 percent of his batted balls triple digits higher than McCutcheon higher than Nolan Arenado uh, and I just thought that was a lot of fun because when have we ever been able to track a pitcher hitting before obviously never yeah, I think that we've we've uncovered a lot of really cool stats uh, with Statcast this season. But I think that actually is my favorite thus far. Is that yeah. he <laughs> hits the ball harder than he throws, and he's like he throws hard. This is not like a, this is not Mark Burley. He's a very good pitcher. He's like perpetually on the verge of a breakout, uh, and here he is. He's hitting ball, and he had I think like one extra base hit in his career leading into the season. So I guess it's kind of the question: Was he always hitting the ball hard and just wasn't getting results before? Or was this kind of a new thing? And I think it might be a little bit of both. I was reading he kind of redid his, his swing after he had shoulder surgery a couple years ago. But uh, I think it's also just if you look at him, he's got a good swing and hits the ball hard. So he's actually the second most productive hitter this year after Madison Bumgarner, even though he hit the ball harder than Bumgarner did. Yeah, when you, when you tweeted the story out, um, I saw that uh, Jared Diamond of the uh, Wall Street Journal, Journal responded to you pretty quickly. And I think it was before he even clicked on it. And he said, let me guess, this is going to tell me that exit velocity doesn't really correlate that well with production. But you actually had written about this the week before, and I mean, what does is, what is Tyson Ross tell us about uh, exit velocity? What is Twitter if you can't respond without reading the story first? <laughs> uh, no, Jared made a very good point. Uh, he was right. He's like, does it correspond with, with production? He's like, I don't know. You're right. Fortunately, I had written about this like a week ago and I was able to send it to him and I think he found it interesting. Uh, and the answer is it does correlate to production pretty well, depending on what kind of production you're looking at. If you are looking at batting average, 
really doesn't correlate at all. I mean, that makes sense because batting average doesn't care about extra base hits. And if you hit the ball harder, you're more likely to get doubles, triples, homers. And you can hit the ball into the ground kind of slowly, like if you're D. Gordon, get a lot of extra, got a lot of hits, get a good batting average if you don't hit the ball very hard. Uh, we looked at weighted on-base average. And I know that sounds like a, a fancy stat, but it's actually very simple if you just think of on-base percentage measures how many times did you get on base out of how many times did you step to the plate. This is the exact same thing, except it doesn't treat every time on base the same. You get more credit for a double than you would for a single. You get more credit for, much more credit for a homer than you would for a walk. It just weights all of those events. And so it actually correlates pretty well to that. And that makes sense, right? Hit the ball hard. You're more likely to get extra base hits. You're more likely to be productive. You look at the top 10 exit velocity leaderboards. You see Trout. You see Donaldson. You see Miguel Cabrera. Uh, and it, it actually works out pretty well. And so that's been a pretty fun finding to see that this actually is something that will go along with production as long as you're looking at the right kind of production. Now, of course, there's in that in that pitcher article, the Tyson Ross piece, there was another pitcher who hits the ball almost as hard, number two on that list. And he sort of helps explain why yeah. uh, exit velocity isn't the be-all, end-all of a... Uh, of hitting prowess. Now, I know you already know the answer, so I'm not going to ask, but I feel like if you didn't know the answer and I asked you to guess who was the second hardest hitting pitcher in baseball this year, you'd probably get through about 50 before you get to this guy because he is so well known to be a poor hitter. And it's John Lester who set a major league record, uh, zero for his first 66 plate appearances. It was the longest hitless streak to start a career ever. And then he got uh, he had the second highest exit velocity as a hitter this year, 92.5 miles an hour. So why does he struggle so much getting hits if he's hitting the ball so hard? Well, two things. One is you can't track an exit velocity if you don't make contact, and that's always going to be an issue for pitchers. But for John Lester specifically, uh, we kind of looked at launch angle too. All right? And launch angle is basically the angle of the ball going back towards the pitcher. All right? So zero is essentially right back at the pitcher. Negative angles are grounders. Higher angles are fly balls. Uh, line drives are roughly 10 degrees to 25 degrees. We looked at Tyson Ross, average launch angle of 10.6, which is really good. He's hitting hard uh, line drives. John Lester, negative 1.4 degrees, which is another way of saying he's hitting the ball hard, but right into the ground. And I actually went back and looked at his hits. You know, the first one went off of uh, the pitcher's ankle. Another one was like just out of Johnny Peralta's reach. So he got his four hits this year and he hit the ball hard, but he's also hitting grounders. And, you know, that's kind of a, a good way to show that you can hit uh, the ball hard every single time, but it also matters what the angle is, right? Like you want to make sure you, you can hit a ball 95 miles an hour straight up in the air going to be an out almost every single time. So it's really combining angle and velocity that's going to get us to production. This is actually is a, uh, a very nice segue to another piece that you wrote today um, about the Mets outfield situation. Obviously, Mets fans in general have been holding out hope that the team would uh, finally uh, step up and sign free agent Yohannes Espedes. It doesn't appear that's going to happen. I guess it might happen. But you wrote a piece basically saying, hey, you know, Mets, Mets fans, you know, relax. The yeah, outfield's still going to be okay. I don't think I've, I've ever angered. I don't think I've ever angered a fan base as much as I did today. And it's not like I wrote something bad about them. I said this team's pretty good. They went to the World Series last year. They've got good players. They're going to be good. And Mets fans were just not having it. They were really, really angry at me, as you probably saw. But that's okay because I stand by it. I think that listen, Cespedes is a very good player. If he comes back, he will be a help. I don't think anybody argues that. But you look at the outfield they have now. Where, where would he fit in? He's not going to displace Michael Conforto because everybody's excited to see a full season of Michael Conforto. He's not going to displace Curtis Granderson, who is kind of perpetually underappreciated because he's not hitting 45 home runs anymore. He's going to be the right fielder. You know, Conforto's going to be the left fielder. So then you put Cespedes in center, but I think we all know, we've seen it, Cespedes is not the world's best defensive outfielder. And you have Juan Lagares there, who we have seen is basically the world's best defensive outfielder when he's right. Last year, obviously, you know, some injury issues didn't play as well and didn't hit that well. But I think a lot of people missed that after Cespedes came on board, uh, Lagara started crushing the ball too. Uh, and a quick aside, that was the first comment I got 
was that Ligaris hit the ball better because Cespedes was there. So you can see where everybody's mindset is right now. But yeah, from uh, the start of the season through July 31st, hit the ball 91 miles an hour. From August 1st on, 94 miles an hour. Uh, weighted runs created plus went from 70 to 121. He's actually, you know, he's not a superstar hitter. There's a lot of reason to believe in Ligaris as being a league average-ish or slightly below with a plus glove. That's not that bad to have. No, I mean, you know, it's funny because, you know, you, you really see how recent, recency bias can take hold in a situation like this. You know, a year ago in 2014, Juan Lagares had a higher war than Johannes Cespedes. If you would ask Mets fans a year ago if they would trade Juan Lagares straight up for Cespedes, who had one year left in his contract, I think 80% of them would have said no. Uh, absolutely. And, and you look at the team that they're situated now, I almost wonder if a better glove in center field is more important given the rest of this this defense because, you know, up the middle, Neil Walker's okay and Cabrera is like an okay shortstop and Granderson's, you know, okay in right field. I, they're not a strong defensive team, right? And so you might almost want a stronger uh, defensive center fielder. I'm not saying I would pick Lagares over Cespedes. If you can get him on a one-year deal or a two-year deal, wonderful. But I don't think that I would go out and give a five, six, seven-year deal to Cespedes based on what we've seen because I think Lagares is actually pretty underrated. Yeah, and um, what's interesting about Lagares, though, and one thing is that he hits the ball very hard, too. I think you mentioned, you know, as you mentioned, his exit velocity. Um, and then separately, I was looking at exit velocity leaders, people who hit the ball over 100 miles per hour most frequently this year, trying to look for guys who are lucky or unlucky, right? And I saw that among players with more than 50 batted balls over 100 miles per hour, Juan Lagares hit 458 and slug 667, which sounds good, but when you hit the ball that hard, you're actually supposed to do a lot better. As it turns out, uh, league average is 690 and 619 and 1260 in such situations. So you could argue Juan Lagares may be one of baseball's unluckiest players in 2015. You could argue that if, if and I think you know where you're going with this, if he stops hitting so many grounders, right? Yes. Isn't that his issue? That's the problem yeah. is that his launch angle was on such balls was below zero. So he has a little bit of the John Lester problem. <laughs> That's right. A little better fielder than John Lester. But yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it kind of goes all back to the same thing. Exit velocity is super cool, but it's not the entire story, right? It's exit velocity and where the ball is angled. Uh, and that's probably the thing I'm most excited about in the future is we're going to combine those things and try to come up with some expected stats. And that's going to be a lot of fun. And that brings, you know, that brings us to Conforto because recently, you know, as I, as I'm known to do in my spare time, I was plotting, doing a scatter plot of uh, launch angle versus exit velocity. Um, and... You know, when, what's cool about StatCast now is you do things like this. This is data that you've never dealt with before. So you sort of see trends or notice maybe little pockets or, or people grouped together you wouldn't expect to be grouped together. And, you know, you, you, when I did the scatter plot, I noticed there were three players who were sort of off on their own in an island, right? Obviously, all the way out to the right when you have exit velocity on the x-axis, Giancarlo Stanton. He hits the ball basically 100 miles per hour. Then next to him, you had Miguel Cabrera. And then next to the him, you had Michael Conforto. The only three players last year with an average exit velocity above 93 miles per hour and a launch angle between 11 and 12. Now, again, we're dealing with small samples. But whenever you can come up with something that says, wait, this rookie compares to two of the best hitters in recent memory, it sort of makes you stop and think, maybe this guy is legit, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe that's what I should have led that article with. You know, my Conforto compares to Stanton and Cabrera. Maybe Mets fans wouldn't have been so angry at me. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. And, and like you said, it really it, it gives a lot of confidence for him going to next year that he's going to be a good player all season long. I think what we need to learn more about is, you know, you said between 11 and 12 degrees. Is that better than between 12 and 13 degrees or between 10 and 11 degrees? I don't think we know enough yet. So I think that's, that's kind of where the uncertainty is. But obviously, he's hitting the ball hard, and he's hitting them on a line drive angle. That, that's the most important thing. 
Well, I think that's more of my thought was like, well, if Miguel Cabrera is hitting the ball this way, that's a good thing. And I right. want to be hitting the ball in a similar way to Miguel Cabrera. Right. Uh, but what's our I want to get to next is I want to find out how interesting averages like that are, right? Because if, let's say, 11 degrees, does that mean you're doing it every single time? Or does that mean sometimes you're doing 22 degrees and sometimes zero degrees? Which one of those guys is actually a more productive hitter? Uh, and I think that's, that's some of the stuff we need to get more than one year of data to find out. So, okay, we've established you are on board with the Mets status quo, or at least think that they could still be a competitive, they don't need Cespedes to oh. challenge. So my question is, you know, right now their center field situation is basically a platoon. Um, do you think with uh, Alejandro Daz and Lagares, is that a platoon you would feel comfortable with? Daz hasn't played a lot of center field, so is there some concern there? I, I think I'd be more comfortable if their handedness was reversed, because I, I'm not super comfortable with, uh, you know, Lagares is the right-hander and Diaz is the left-hander. So he's going to be facing the majority of the pitchers. I, I, yeah, I like him as a part-time player. I don't know if he's going to be the you know, 70% of the time uh, guy in center field because you're right, his defense isn't that great. So does that mean Ligaris plays against more righties who he's not necessarily that great at? I think it's fine. Uh, I just I would be happier if it was kind of inverted. You know, Either way, I don't think they're going to get Cespedes back, so they did the best uh, out of the situation they could. You know, It's probably not going to be enough for fans to be happy about. It's still going to be productive. Okay, speaking of Cespedes, let's say... Mets, he's not going there. Where does he go? I mean, you you could make a case for him in like a bunch of places, right? There are, there are three teams. I cannot imagine they don't come out of this offseason with, with an outfielder. The White Sox so badly need an outfielder, especially in left field. I know they have Melky Cabrera and they have Avisel Garcia. Neither one played very well. The Angels... Uh, name their left fielder right now. Daniel Nava. Like, <laughs> that's basically it. Uh, and Baltimore. I know they just signed Chris Davis. I know they're probably not going to go sign somebody else expensive, but who's playing on either side of Adam Jones right now? Is it going to be Davis with Trumbo at first? I don't know. Those three teams all really badly need uh, an outfielder. I, I like Justin Upton for a lot of those teams. Obviously, he's in Detroit now. It's got to be one of those teams, or, or maybe the Mets. I mean, can't count them out yet, but it's not going to be the Mets. But you have to imagine part of the reason why he's still on the market is that there are doubts or I wouldn't say doubts about his ability, but questions, I guess, about his, you know, consistency. I mean, from a StatCast perspective, I think you did a piece on StatCast's five tool players, and there was, it was a little bit subjective, a little bit whimsical. Yeah, we kind of made it up. We had fun over All-Star break, yeah. But it was, there was eight players on it, and he yes. was one of them. And I think that, you know, that passes the sniff test. Oh, yeah, he would absolutely. Do. But, you know, his production doesn't really match the tools. Um you know, in, if we go by weighted runs created, plus in 2013, it was 102, 100 is average. In 2014, it was 109. You know, you know, in 2015, he was a star, but two years before, he was you a know, pretty average player. You know who he was? From, I looked this up the other day. Between 2012 and 2014, and ignored defense entirely, just from an offensive uh, at-the-plate capacity, he was Mark Trumbo. They were very, very similar players. Big power, low on base. What did Mark Trumbo get? He got like one year and $8 million, and Seattle couldn't be rid of him quick enough. Obviously, I'm not saying that he's Mark Trumbo. He's a much better defender. He had a much better 2015. But you're right. I think to look at Cespedes and say the six weeks or so that the Mets got him for, you know, August and September, that's the guy he is. I don't think that's right because that guy hit better than Josh Donaldson did. And I don't think anybody looks at Cespedes and says he's better than Josh Donaldson. He's like a 20% above average hitter, not a 50% above average hitter. And I think that's the issue. He wants to be paid like that guy. He wants to be paid like the guy that they saw down the stretch. And, and it doesn't work that way. We saw what happened to Daniel Murphy. You know, he played like Babe Ruth for three weeks, and he got a contract that's kind of disappointing. And I think that's the disconnect here. Cespedes wants to be paid like the guy we saw for six weeks, and everybody else wants to pay him like the guy he's been for several years. Well, the comp for him on the market this year, the most direct comp was Justin Upton. You know, right-handed hitting, left fielders with pull power. 
We saw him sign this week, and recently you had written that you thought Justin Upton had become kind of underrated, uh, which is a, a stance I agree with. He gets, what, six years for $125 million? Yeah, I thought. With a two-year opt-out, I believe? With a two-year opt-out. You know, is, is, is that the framework for what Cespedes gets? If you had to guess, does he get more? Does he get less? You know, the opt-outs really kind of mess up all the valuation because <laughs> everybody's getting an opt-out now after different years, and it really kind of screws up everything. Uh, I did think Upton was a little underrated. He's, he's two years younger. He's not quite the outfielder, but if you look over the last two seasons, he was a more productive hitter than Cespedes, than uh, Jason Hayward, than Alex Gordon. And I, I think that to get that deal for Detroit, I really liked that a lot. And there haven't been a lot of deals this winter I've actually liked. That one for Detroit really made a lot of sense. Cespedes, he's probably going to end up with some kind of opt-out in his deal. Otherwise, he's probably going to get something similar. But, you know, the, the teams are dwindling. And I don't think Baltimore's going to pay that. And I don't think the Angels are going to pay that. The time comes where there's just not going to be those teams left. But we say that every year, and these guys always get paid. You, what would you think the chances are on a one-year deal? Or do you think that it just... It can't, it can't happen. It it's just... not going to happen. I understand why, right? Because he, get, he gets into the market next year, and next year's uh, free agent market is really going to be brutal, especially on offense. The problem I see with that is he's probably not going to have the same year, like the platform year he just did. He may very well have a qualifying offer, or maybe not. I can never remember. He's got that weird contract where maybe it's written out. He hasn't been in six no, years. He can, he, 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 I looked into this. He, he can. He it can depends on it. how this. It depends on the contract is written, but he can get he a can qualifying okay. offer. And he'll, be, and he'll be a year older. Right? So is that really going to get him a better deal than he's going to get right now? It's a lot of risk on his part. Because if he doesn't have like a good season, then that's, he's toast. Yeah, so in a, in a vacuum, who would you rather have for the next two years, Cespedes or Upton? Next two years, Cespedes. Next six years, Upton. Seems... A, lot, a lot of that's age and risk. But I like Upton. He's, he's steady. You know what you're going to get. Cespedes, a lot of risk, a lot, a lot of volatility. Any concerns about Upton in that ballpark? Well, you know, it's not the best ballpark for him. It would have been nicer if he was in a park like the White Sox where it's really nice for a right-handed hitter. But it's actually not death. It's about average to be a right-handed hitter hitting home runs in that park. Um, you know, it's fine. There, there's actually some evidence I saw with Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass, right, that it suppresses strikeouts that park, which is, if that's true, that's great for him. So, no, I think that lineup is going to be a whole lot of fun, and Justin Upton might only be, like, the fifth best hitter at it. So that's a great spot for him. All right, Matt Myers, thank you for the great conversation. We turn now to Jonathan Mayo, MLB.com senior prospect writer. Uh, in the midst of a big month, top 100 list comes out on January 29th. We've already seen the top 10 list of right-handed pitchers come out, top 10 list of left-handed pitchers come out. Jonathan, thanks for joining me tonight. How are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about the top 100 list, which, uh, as I said, comes out January 29th. I'm really curious about how that list comes together, because what I'm envisioning is you and Jim Callis in a dark room yelling at each other about whether Daz, Daz Cameron has projectable power. That's, that's, that's it exactly. And we have a large uh, dartboard. <laughs> and we throw. Now, so it's, uh, it's kind of a multi-pronged process. Uh, it's, it's Jim and myself and, and Mike Rosenbaum who... Uh, who joined the MLB Pipeline, uh, Mary Band of Misfits, not uh, not too long ago, uh, and so we each we start out with our own top 100, and then we kind of combine them, uh, and from there we will then tweak a little bit here and there, and then uh, we will send it out to people in the industry, scouting directors, uh, executives, that those sorts for feedback. This you know, to, to see what people out there think, and then we'll tweak it from there. Uh, and it's kind of a, a process that goes on, you know, right up until somewhat recently where we're realizing as we're putting in grades for guys that, boy, well, this guy's grades seem really high. Should we move him up one or two places? And, and we could nitpick forever, uh, but I think uh, at the end of the day, 
uh, it's a fairly thorough process, and we feel pretty good about what the list looks like uh, when it's time to launch it. No, I have not seen the list, and I don't know what it's going to look like, but my guess is, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's going to be a lot of turnover. Because when I look at 2015, the rookie class we just had, uh, by some measures, by wins above replacement, was the best in the century. I mean, you look at all the guys who came up, Lindor, Correa, Bryant, Peterson, Schwarber, on and on and on and on. Uh, I imagine that must wreak some havoc with your list with all of these guys kind of graduating off. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'll tell you for certain is that there are 100 guys on it. I'm not, not going to divulge too much. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, and because we, we – it's a dynamic list of sorts. We're not constantly re-ranking. But as a Chris Bryant gets past rookie status and gets past 130 at-bats uh, or service time, you know, we take them off the list. So those guys have been removed already. So it, it, there is some turnover. If you look at last year's preseason list to this year's preseason list, a ton of turnover, uh, and probably more than than I can remember. Uh, you, you know, and that's whether or not they had impact or not, uh, or positive impact. You know, they clearly did. Uh, but just in terms of the amount of guys that were called upon to play uh, and, and get past those those rookie markers w- was astounding. Uh, so it definitely is a much, much different list um, than, you know, than it was. Now, there are a couple guys who sort of just barely made it uh, for consideration. Corey Seager and Byron Buxton will still be on the list somewhere. Uh, uh, we, we keep joking because uh, Buxton finished at 129 at-bats last year. Uh, he's going to come off, you know, let's say, if, assuming he makes the Twins opening day roster, we may take him off the list after the first day of the season. <laughs> That'll be interesting to see. Uh, when you when you are, you know, evaluating a process, prospect, I mean, what's your process? I, I've seen you say uh, in other places that you consider yourself more of a reporter than a scout. Uh, yep. And so I, I take that to mean that it's less about you looking at a player and more about you gathering uh, opinions from around the game. But you've also been doing this for a long time. I mean, you must have a little bit of your own opinion when you see a guy throw and you see a guy hit, et cetera, et cetera. I'm pretty sure you're just implied that I'm old. No, but, no um, of course not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think you know, there, there are kind of two schools of thought uh, in terms of people who do what I do. Uh, and one is the sort of fact-gathering reporter philosophy, and one is the uh, scouting, you know, I do it by based on what I see. I am definitely in the former group, um, but yeah, I've been doing it long enough where, uh, at the very least, if somebody points something out to me, I can either say yes, I see it there, or, or you know, on occasion, I'll be like, well, no, you know, I don't know that I see it that way. Uh, I may use what I see to help break ties, you know, or if we're haggling over a guy's slider, uh, and I saw it on more than one occasion as being really, really, really good. And then maybe we'll bump it up five, five points on the 20 to 80 scouting scale. But I, I, you know, I, I haven't been to scout school. I've been trained as a scout. I talk to them a lot. Uh, I understand what they're talking about and I, you know, and I know what I'm seeing, uh, but I would much rather defer to the opinions uh, of the people who are, who are experts who are, who are paid to, to, to evaluate players at all levels. Now, what sort of stats do you value when you do this? Because I think we know in the minors, it's really dangerous, it's really, to, to scout the stat line because you'll see a guy who hit 330, but maybe you don't know he's too old for the level or that his home field is in high desert or somewhere insane like that. And we don't always have, you know, like a, a stat cast set up at all these stadiums to get kind of like the next level right. stats. Uh, what what's really comes to mind when you're looking at a guy in terms of numbers? 
I could I could turn your listeners off in a second and be like, well, it's just batting average and wins for pitchers, right? That's all that matters. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, don't do that. Don't say that. You, know, you think wins don't matter in the at the major league level? Uh, at the minor league level, it's even you know it's even nuttier to to base it on that. You know, I think there are a number of things, and you know, the more uh, advancements there are with advanced metrics that you know bleed into the minor leagues at all levels, the uh, the better snapshot you get of, of a player. Um, you know, the, the, the simple stuff that, you know, is on base and slugging, uh, and, and things of that nature. I think some of the counting stats matter, uh, but you have to look to see where it's taking place. As you pointed out, a guy hits 30 homers in the California league, it doesn't mean that much, which is why you'll often see when we're writing these guys up that, you know, scouts want to see, uh, what they do at the higher levels. Um, I think once you get to double and triple A, some of those numbers mean more. Uh, even if it's in, you know, uh, more of a hitter's or pitcher's park and things like that, just because of the competition they're facing. And the, and the general rule of thumb is that if a guy puts up numbers in double A, he probably can have success uh, in the big leagues. But, um, you know, I, I think that there's still can a lot can be done to, to, to tighten up uh, things like war. For, for guys in the minor leagues and, and what that means. Uh, um, you know, on the pitching side, uh, I think it's actually easier because I think uh, walk rate and strikeout rate and hit rate and things like that uh, are kind of universal and will point to success uh, or failure. Um, guy doesn't have to, you know, strike out 11 per nine, uh, but if he moves up a level and suddenly he goes from eight to six, say, then you start to worry because you do need to miss bats occasionally, I think, to have success at the highest level, unless you're some sort of extreme ground ball uh, pitcher. I want to turn your attention uh, to Cuba, which I think is kind of a really fascinating marketplace in baseball right now. It used to be we'd get a couple of names coming over each year, and a lot of them were older guys, you know, Jose Breu and Cespedes. Right. Now it seems like we're getting, uh, you know, more and more, and some of them are teenagers, and we're seeing, you know, $30 million contracts for guys that just about nobody publicly has ever heard of. How tough is it to deal uh, when evaluating these younger guys when they come from kind of these murky backgrounds? You know, like what, what, do you, uh, what do you use other than talking to scouts and trying to, to put numbers on these guys? That's that's it really, um, and you know, I, I, like I feel like I, I want to like uh, use a lifeline and call Jesse Sanchez to to handle this this part of it because he's really he does the heavy lifting on on the international front and has been all over the the signing of Cubans and it's such an interesting market. I mean, it was always interesting because of the mystery behind it. Now that it's starting to open up a little bit. Uh, it's going to become more interesting, and I think it's going to end up, uh, we're talking years down the line, uh, a lot like uh, the Dominican uh, or Venezuela. In fact, a lot of people think with the political unrest in Venezuela, Venezuela and Cuba might switch places in terms of ease and difficulty uh, of, of evaluating players. Uh, the hardest thing with the, the, the Cuban guys, Mike, is that so often you don't, you know, even though those who are evaluating decide to, to pay the money, you don't, you don't necessarily get to see them play in, in games. Uh, you know, you, you see them in workouts and things like that. And uh, that makes it really, really, really tricky uh, because you may see a guy with a ton of tools, um, you know, or like some ridiculous amount of tools, but, uh, you know, but you don't actually see them in, in, in real action, you know, so it's, it's very hard to, to evaluate 
sometimes it's a leap of faith. Uh, that, you know, I don't know if the contracts uh, right now are just because it's like, ooh, you know, it's a new thing. Uh, but, you know, th- these are guys that we must take a look at and, and pay. And you're right, it's not the 24, 25 rows. Now we're looking at the 17 and 18 year olds. Uh, it's more in line with what's happening, you know, in the, in the Dominican stuff. And but the contracts are of a much greater uh, magnitude. And part of the reason that these guys are getting paid so much more than American uh, players is that they're they're free agents. So there's been a lot of talk about an international draft. And I guess I'd ask you both: Do you think there will be one, and do you want there to be one? It's it's a really. I think something needs to be done, or I think it would be beneficial if something could be done to somewhat regulate what, hap- what happens. You're right. It's the ultimate um, open market system, right? So everyone can bid each other up. But it, uh, I've been somewhat surprised at how willing many teams who have somewhat limited resources because of their market size or revenue stream uh, have been willing to go over their pool money and be penalized for it. Um, especially with some of these Cuban guys. Some of it is because they look at the next year and they don't see as much in the draft class or, or what have you. I don't see how they could possibly pull off a full-on international draft. Uh, just things are run so differently from country to country. Um, I, I just and, and people who sort of oversee, for better or for worse, baseball in these different countries are not going to loosen their grip on that very easily. But even if they could, it's just that systems are different from Venezuela to the Dominican. Uh, you know, Puerto Rico is a part of the of the regular draft. Uh, then you have all these sort of uh, not as tapped markets like Nicaragua or Colombia, where you still get some some very good players. And who knows what's next? China? I, you know, I don't know about like how you could possibly bring all of that together. I mean, how do you put uh, a 27 year old Korean player? into the same kind of acquisition system as a 16-year-old from the Dominican. Would you do it? Where do you draw the line? You know, so I, I, there are so many questions and, and logistical obstacles to overcome that I, I don't foresee it happening any time in the near future, even if there are those uh, you know, in the commissioner's office who, who would like to see it happen one day. Yeah, I think you're right. It's incredibly complicated. But just as a baseball fan, I love seeing guys come out of these new countries, like Max Kepler, whose parents were, I believe, German ballet dancers, yep. who is you know a very good Twins prospect. Um, so it's kind of fun to see that the new places where the game is taking hold. I want to ask you quickly, while we have you, about some of the top 10 positional lists that have come out. Uh, your right-handers list came out, uh, MLBPipeline.com. Second year in a little, Lucas Giolito tops the list. Uh, but what really stood out to me is uh, Jose de Leon. Uh, he's fascinating to me because you look at the other guys on this list. I think five of them were first-round picks. Seven of them had a bonus of at least $1 million. And then you have Jose de Leon, 24th rounder in 2013, signed for $35,000 out of Southern University, who I believe the, the most notable big leaguer they've ever had is Ricky Weeks. Uh, his first year rookie ball had an ERA of almost seven. Here he is two years later. We're probably going to be in your top 100. Is obviously in your top 10 of right-handed pitchers. Have you ever seen a guy take a, a, a step this large this quick? Not, not typically. There are a couple of a uh, couple of guys that do come to mind, but they often were at least on the map, uh, and then made huge step forward from being kind of a interesting guy to wow, you know. And he kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and you know, I think what was interesting is you know, 2014, he had that that big step forward, 
And then sometimes those guys then in 2015, they uh, sort of get stopped or they hit a stumbling block. Even if they eventually figure it out, he just kept going. Um, and, you know, the fact that he, it, you know, spent a good portion of the year in, in double A. And uh, again, you look at the, the hit rates and, and the strikeout rate, uh, and pretty impressive stuff. His numbers are almost video game numbers. Um, and it, a lot of it just is, you know, some of it is changing his mechanics and, he, you know, bought into actually getting in better shape and how that can impact the uh, pitcher. Cause he's not a six, five, 165 pound high schooler who you dream on and you wait for him to fill out. Uh, and, and then he does. Um, he's not that kind of guy. He's kind of, you know, a little bit more physically mature. There was room for him to add strength and that's what he did. But, uh, yeah, he is, he is fascinating. And I am very curious to see what he does this year. I mean, because if he keeps on doing what he has been doing since 2014, you're going to see him in the big leagues at some point this year. Yeah. And I know Dodger fans are very excited about him, but I guess with the way their off season has gone, he's about 14th on the starting pitcher depth chart. Right that's now. right. They may go to do a 20 man rotation. <laughs> um, last question for you. And I don't, well, I know the top hundred is not out yet, so I'm not asking you to blow anything, but is there an under the radar guy who really is not getting that much publicity? You know, someone who's not going to be on one of these top 10 lists who you look at and you go, I really think this guy's going to take a big step forward next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's tons. I'm trying to, trying to think of a guy who might be like way off. The, yeah. Well, you know, I'll be a little bit of a Homer. I live, I live in Pittsburgh. Um, and you know, there's some obvious guys, you know, Tyler glass now is on the right-handed pitchers list. Uh, number two. Uh, so obviously he's firmly in the top 100. Uh, I'm going to point people to Harold Ramirez. Um, he is another find from the, uh, international scouting department, the Latin American scouting director for the pirates is Renee Gallo. And he's, uh, done an incredible job finding talent and finding talent on the cheap. Uh, you know, Gregory Polanco and Starling Marte uh, signed for pennies compared to some of the contracts that, that you see. And, and Howard Ramirez is another guy who didn't get a ton of money, um, but he's got a lot of tools and a pretty good idea at the plate. Um, he, he's not one of these guys that you know, is raw and hasn't been able to figure it out at all. And uh, he's a guy who I think could take a huge step forward now uh, you talked about the Dodgers rotation. The Pirates outfield is somewhat similar, not only at the big league level, but you know, with some of the uh, their better prospects. You know, Austin Meadows is one of their best prospects, and he's in the outfield. So there's a logjam. So you may not hear from Harold Ramirez uh, in the big leagues, at least not in a Pirate uniform. But don't be surprised if uh, he breaks through and/or you hear his name coming up uh, in trade talks. Uh, say if the Pirates are, are competing and they need some help, uh, I could see them trading from their outfield depth, and he's a guy that I think would probably uh, garner a lot of interest. All right, Harold Ramirez, that's a good name. I'm going to keep an eye on him, and I'm going to hold you to that. Uh, Jonathan Mayo, senior prospect writer at MLB.com, really good stuff. Uh, look out for top 10 lists by positions coming out over the next couple of weeks, top 100 lists coming out at MLBpipeline.com January 29th. Jonathan, appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Mike. This has been the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thank you to Matt Myers and Jonathan Mayo of MLB.com. I'm Mike Petriello. We will catch you next week.